series this semester on three Old Testament books, uh, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. They tend to be somewhat dark, at times violent, and a little disturbing at times. And so I've titled the series Deliverance in the Darkness, uh, God, Death, and Love. And, and next week, in some ways, the, the violence and the darkness sort of begins to descend. We'll do a Q&A next week after the message as well, so you can pepper me with some of your concerns. This week's not one of those messages that's actually really quite positive. Um, and by way of introduction, I want to ask if you can remember an experience sort of as a setup. Okay, I'm pretty sure this is a universal human experience. You know how sometimes you've had a thing and you've gotten over that thing. You've forgotten about it, you moved on from it, you found a, a better thing. And then one day you see someone else with the thing. Or it could be someone else with the him or the her. And all of a sudden, the imagination is kindled. The, the wonder comes back. The magic flickers for just a second. And, and, you, and you see that, that old thing you've forgotten or moved on from and like all over again anew. You know what I'm talking about? That ever happened to you? I, I mean, it happens every single day in my house with my kids. Like they forget something, move on. They don't want it anymore. And the second someone else picks it up, they're like, that's mine, I want it. And they're like, fight to the death for it. Um, But I don't think this is just pure, sheer envy. I I think there's something about us where we can see it, having forgotten it, when we see it on someone or with someone again, we start to see it objectively again for the first time anew. And we remember like, no, that that was really good. That was really great. And uh, maybe even miss it a little bit. And sometimes we can have that experience even if we haven't had it. You know, we haven't had it, and we don't really even thought about it. And then we'll see someone else with it, and, or, or, or him or her. This can be personal as well, and you can think, that would be really great to have that. Um, and, I, and I bring up that weird scenario, because I think it's a, a sort of a universal experience, to introduce our text, because what we're going to do is, uh, as we look at the story of Rahab, I, I'm hoping as we talk about this and look at it, that we will appreciate anew, or maybe for the first time, the wonderful nature of God's salvation. Just how great and good it is as we see it in the life of this hooker, this prostitute. We're going to see God's salvation, something that a lot of us have heard about or know personally, but maybe take for granted. And we're going to see it in her life. And my hope is we'll look at it and say, that is astounding. That is amazing. That is so very good. How could I have forgotten how good this is? So I'm going to read all of chapter 2 and one verse from chapter 6. Feel free to follow along. Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim. I actually don't know how to say it, but I say it that way. As spies saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman who had taken the two men in and hidden them, she had taken them in and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, and the men went out, I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way, 
to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and to deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. She let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, so the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. And the men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, all your father's household. And if anyone goes out the doors of his household into the street, his blood shall be on his own head. We will be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is within your house, his blood shall be on our head. And if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you've made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went to the hill country and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. The two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. Also, the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. And then one verse from chapter 6. Rahab the prostitute in her father's household and all who belonged to her. Joshua saved alive. She has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent out, whom Joshua had sent to spy out Jericho. All right, I'm going to pray. Feel free to join me if you like. Uh, Great Father, we pray that uh, in the late part of the week, in the late part of the night, when uh, we're prone to be weary, distracted, worn down, or, or full of, uh, who knows, all kinds of thoughts, desires, and distractions. We ask that you would uh, help us to see wonderful things in your law, especially you, Lord Jesus, and your great salvation. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Over uh, Christmas break, I got to do something I almost never get to do, and that's uh, watch a movie. And I went and watched The Greatest Showman. Anyone seen that? Uh, despite the the critics and perhaps uh, quite just criticism of some who uh, don't think it tells the, f- the full story of P.T. Barnum, which it doesn't, it is fantastically entertaining. Would you all agree? Fantastically entertaining? Yeah. Um, so in the movie, uh, P.T. Barnum's played by Wolverine, um, <laughs> Hugh Jackman, and uh, it starts off as a young man. He's, he's desperate for business and inspired by his, his daughter's advice and sort of remembering the, the past kindness of this socially rejected cripple, he decides to take the drastic step of inviting into his museum all the freakishly abnormal outcasts of society to join what will eventually become a circus. A dwarf who never leaves his house, a bearded lady who sings like a bird but would never let her face be seen in public, 
All these people who lived in the shadows because of fear of rejection, he brings them in. And later in the movie, when uh, he's lost just about everything, he's deeply despairing. He's at a bar by himself, drinking himself into oblivion. Uh, the members of the circus, all of these societal rejects, gather around him. And the bearded lady, who's sort of the spokesman for the group, speaking on their behalf, seeks to remind him of all the good that he's done. And she says, pointing this out, the world was ashamed of us, but you put us in the spotlight and you gave us a real family. Now, it's a beautiful moment. And that whole theme in the movie is great. Um, but as you watch it, perhaps, you may be wondering, man, I wish, I sort of wish the church was more like that. I sort of wish God's people were more like that. I sort of wish that the God of the Bible was more like that. And uh, surprisingly, actually, I think the church is like that, and the God of the Bible is as well. It's just often hard to see. Um, but tonight we do see it. It's on full display. If you weren't here last week, let me catch you up. In the midst of mash, massive, not national, that word doesn't exist, massive national uh, leadership change, okay, like the president, the prophet, the priest, everything in one person changed. There's a new, there's a new guy in town. Uh, in, the, in the midst of that change, in the midst of the beginning of a large-scale ground war, God wants us to see the faith of a prostitute. That's what he wants us to see in this chapter. He really wants us to see and hear and learn. And, uh, and that, that should make you ask the question, what, what, what can we learn from a pagan prostitute? That's who she is, a pagan prostitute. And God wants us to see in Rahab's surprising story just how great is God's salvation. So uh, I, I put outlines out. If you're an outline follower, they'll be available on the sides each week. But here it is. Uh, we're going to look at the successful recon mission, surprising faith, special story, and some lessons from the school of Rahab. And uh, some of you counted, and you're like, that's four. Oh, no. Chill. Okay. Uh, the successful recon is really apparent uh, and a little surprising. And, but it starts off scan- in a scandalous nature, all right? Joshua sends out these spies, and they scout out Jericho. And the first thing they do is they walk into a prostitute's house. And uh, it's almost like a joke. Two young Jewish guys walk into a prostitute's house. And you're like, ah. And, um, you know, what are you, what are you doing there, of all places? And, uh, but actually, it's sort of sensible. Um, if you're uh, the kind of person that doesn't want to be noticed, you would go to the kind of place where people don't want to be noticed. And uh, that would be a whorehouse. Right, that's what she did. Uh, Rahab was not only you know, the mistress, but she was probably the manager of this place. It was sort of like an old Western saloon. You can imagine people coming in and out uh, of the place and out of the city and stopping in. So it would be a sensible place to go because there would be people there that don't want to be seen. And there would also be the kind of place where news would come in and out. So this actually, although it seems scandalous, sort of makes sense. And in the end, it is successful. They go back in verses 23 and 24 and they report to Joshua what they've heard. Hey, God's given us the land. They are, they are utterly terrified of us. They have no will to fight. They're going to crumble. And, uh, and that's great. But it raises the question, it should raise the question, thinking people, is this chapter even necessary? This book is about God giving his people the land. He told them in chapter 1, arise, go, possess the land. Okay, well, what are we waiting for? 
And they do this recon mission, and even if the recon mission was really important, uh, why wasn't it given like three verses? They went, they found out, they came back. No, for some reason, it's not a tangent. God wants us to focus. He wants us to focus on the story of Rahab. Rather than being a, a tangent, it's more like a tunnel. The whole chapter is, is funneled toward her faith. It starts off with a reconnaissance mission. It ends with the report. What happens next is she protects them. What happens before the recon's over is they protect her. They talk about that. And right dead in the middle is her surprising faith. It's like God is focusing the chapter on this surprising woman. And and the surprise starts with her actions. She acts to protect them. She hides them. She lies for them. And then she gives them guidance how to escape. And uh, it's very, very common for some of you really ethically um, conscionable people um, throughout history to be deeply troubled by her lie. And, and you should. She lied. You're not supposed to do that. And so people would ask me, hypothetically, what do you think about her lie? And I would say, well, it's a lie. She shouldn't do that. Um, but why is the text silent about the lie? And to that question, I have no answer. Except I would guess that I would, I would give you two possible answers. One, she's got bigger problems. She's a prostitute. Uh, lying's bad. She sleeps with strangers, enters in agreements where she uses them and is used by them regularly for a living. She commits adultery every day. She gets paid for it. I mean, she's got bigger problems than just a small lie. Uh, but secondly, and I don't think that's the best answer, the best answer probably is uh, Joshua wants us to see the bigger thing here. He doesn't want us to focus on the lie. The bigger thing is, why is she doing this? Why, why is she acting this way? Why is she protecting them at all? Why would she do this? Because it's dangerous. It's treasonous. She doesn't have anything to protect her. She's just a prostitute. And what she's doing is really dangerous. And uh, what all her actions point to is a surprising faith. It begins to manifest itself more clearly when she speaks. And imagine being the spies on the roof, okay? You've walked into the whorehouse. Maybe your first bad decision. And then they're coming to find you. And she leads you up to the roof and lays you down on the roof and hides you. And you think, they're going to find us and we're going to die. And uh, instead, they pass by. And then, then the hooker comes up as you're going to bed. And, and the text says, as they were lying down. And they say, as you're lying down, what are you expecting a prostitute to say? And you know, the spies are probably thinking, like, these are the women my mommy warned me about. And, uh, and what the prostitute says is utterly shocking. Uh, she says in, in verses 8 and 9, I know the Lord has given you the land. Like, I don't know what they were expecting her to say, but they were not expecting her to say that. First of all, she knows their God's name. What, where, what, how do you know that? And uh, she goes and explains in some ways in her confession, hey, we've heard, we've, the, the news of, you know, there's like a couple hundred thousand of you living out in the desert, and you cross the Red Sea on dry ground, news gets around, guys. And we heard what you did to the king of the Amorites, and I can imagine the spies saying like, yeah, 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 that was sort of like a shock and awe moment. I suppose, I suppose news of those kind of things would get around throughout the, throughout the region. So she knows something about uh, God's power, based on what she's heard. But the real center of her confession, the real drop-dead, I can't believe she's saying this moment, is at the end of verse 11. In the middle of verse 11, she says, For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens, 
above and on the earth beneath. This is not something that any pagan prostitute would ever say. Any Canaanite would ever say. Um, I, you know, I wasn't there. Obviously, I wasn't there. I'm old. I wasn't there. I cannot imagine the expression on the, on the spies' faces. How could she possibly come to this conclusion? She's a pagan Canaanite. They have... They don't have a God. They have a plethora of gods. They have the Baals and the Asherah and the Molechs and the Els and many, many others. And they all have their own little separate spheres of sovereignty. How could she possibly come to the conclusion that there is just one God? And he is the only God of all of heaven and all of earth. And none of those other Canaanite deities that I grew up living in, surrounded by, all the time, are anything but apparitions. She's come to that conclusion. She's come to that conviction. She says it. How? How does she, how does she get there? How does she get to this astounding confession, this surprising faith? And, and we see that she knows something about God's character. She knows something about his power. News has come throughout the ancient Near East that there's this desert deity, and he ain't messing around. He splits the sea, crosses people across the Jordan. Um, but that's just his might. That's just his power and his judgment. And, and the rest of the Canaanites in Jericho know about this, and, and they do the logical thing. They're scared to death. But she has faith. What makes her reaction different? Somehow, somehow Rahab has come to know another really important characteristic of the biblical God. And that's his mercy. You see a hint of that in verse 12. Verse 12 is worth your attention. She says, Please swear to me by the Lord that as I've dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house. And she'll go on and say, And save us all, deliver us. And that repetition, you heard that repetition, deal kindly with, that's a, that's a really important and beautiful word in the Old Testament. Um, I'm not a language snob, and I don't want to sound smart by quoting the ancient languages, but if there's really important words in the Old Testament you should know, one would be the name of God, Yahweh. She knows it somehow. And the other would be some of his characteristics that he talks about himself all the time. And two of them, two of these words, these adjectives come up all the time. And this is one of them, hesed. It means faithful, loving kindness. His faithful, loving kindness. Shorthand, mercy. Because all that's undeserved. She somehow knows that Israel's God is merciful, kind, and that what she's done is an imitation of his love. What she's done in protecting them is an imitation of his love. And she's saying, just as I have protected you, dealt kindly with you, would you, servants of Israel's God, would you also deal kindly with me? Would you act like the God of the Bible? Somehow she knows about God's mercy, and she, and she seeks refuge in it. She seeks refuge in it. Friends, this is a surprising faith. I, it, it, yeah, I, I've been in prisons. I've been overseas. I've been on ships. I haven't been in space. But, uh, man, I, I can't... And I would expect to go to any number of these places and find people of genuine, convicted faith. You don't walk into ancient, an ancient pagan Canaanite whorehouse and hear a confession like this. You don't. And uh, 
that raises the question, like, how in the world did she come to believe? How? How did she know that? How did she come to believe this? And, and the answer, actually, I think there's only one real possible answer. It's that God saved her. I mean, it's, I think it's that hard and that simple. She has faith because God gave it to her. I, I think that's the only possible answer. She has real faith because God gave it to her. It was a gift. She, did she deserve it? Of course not. She's a pagan prostitute. But this is the biblical religion. No one has ever deserved it. No one. If anyone has it, it's a gift. And because he's good, he has given it to her. He's, he's saved her. This pagan prostate, prostitute who made a living out of using people and being used, sleeping with strangers, sleeping with husbands, worshiping false gods, she's delivered. She's saved. And here's my question. Is your grasp of God's goodness and of his salvation, is it that good? Is it that good? If it's not, it's because you don't realize how bad you have it, how much you need it. We'll get to that in a moment. But if you have come to some understanding, like, yeah, if it's not a gift, if it's not given to me undeserved, I'm in trouble. If you have come to that consideration, like, I, I, I need it given to me as an undeserved gift because I have to earn it, I'm cooked. If you come to that, then have you taken refuge like her? Would you please take me in? Have you, have you asked that of him? Have you taken refuge in his mercy and stopped trying to earn it or perform for him? Her story is not finished. And so often in the Old Testament, these, these small Old Testament characters just sort of disappear on the pages. You never hear about them again. But that's not her story, actually. Uh, we see her story again in chapter 6, which I read, when they come and destroy Jericho, which I'll talk about next week. Uh, we read in verse 25, I'll read it again, that uh, she is saved, her and her family. Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household, and all who belong to her, Joshua, saved alive. And she, listen to this, she has lived in Israel to this day. See that? This is really important. Rahab's story doesn't end with her just proclaiming the faith and going on. No, she has a special story. Her special story involves real change. Her life is changed. You you don't confess Israel's God, join Israel's people, and go on running the Canaanite whorehouse. You just don't. She becomes a different kind of person. And the, trans, the transformation's already begun in this text. Like, her, her courage in protecting the spies. Where did that come from? Why would she do that? Why would she even care? The transformation's working itself out in her life. And, and we find out elsewhere in the Bible that she, she moves in with Israel. She marries. She settles down. She has a family. You gotta think about that. Man, these Jewish people took their faith very seriously. That means... Either she like completely snookered some idiot, or somehow her transformation was so complete that some faithful Jewish man that loves God and, and knew her story. I mean, she's called Rahab the prostitute. She's like in the book. People know who she is. Some Jewish man that loves God looked at her and said, she's become a beautiful woman of God. I, I want to live with her. I want to marry her. Can you imagine someone changing so much? Because that's what happens. Her life has changed. And, and someone marries her. And they have a family. 
and uh, it's, it's pretty awesome. It's pretty beautiful. And she has a new family and a new community. These Israelites bring her in, and, uh, and, and the family's always been open. When they left Egypt, Egyptians went with them. Uh, she becomes one of them. She's an outsider no more. These are her people, her community, her family. And I call that a special story because I think it's pretty awesome that her life was so radically changed and she found herself a new home and a new family. But it's not special in this regard. It's not just her. Anyone who knows God's salvation, anyone who truly takes refuge in Him, this is your story. Once you've been grasped by His grace, He will not let you go. He will take you as you are, but not leave you as you are. He will change you. And He will continually pull you deeper and deeper into His family, giving you a new life and a new family. The... uh, Toward the end of the movie, The Greatest Showman, Barnum has uh, latched on this beautiful, gifted new act. And, uh, and everyone, everyone wants to see her. You know, he's had this very successful business, but not a very well-respected one. And, uh, and now even the rich and sophisticated, you know, those that go to operas, uh, want to go and see what Barnum is offering. And he's getting, finally getting the respect he's longed for. And they're having this really special gala event in New York and uh, his circus family all the all the weird rejects that have brought him such success in the first place they went in on the party they like climb up the back staircase and they want to come in and uh, for the first time this man that put them in the spotlight pushes them pushes them away he closes the door because in his moment of glory he doesn't want these these rejects, these freaks, these weird ones, diminishing his glory. You might expect someone like Rahab with her story to have her moment in chapter 2 and then just sort of fade away. Because, you know, it's, it's a good story, but it's a tad bit embarrassing. Good Jewish boys, military, we're going to spy out the land, end up in the whorehouse. She gets saved, joins the family. Okay, that's enough with the prostitutes, okay? Um, it's a good story. Let's just move on. But, and we would sort of maybe expect the scriptures and God to like say, okay, you're part of the family. Why don't you go stand in the back of the picture over behind the Christmas tree? And instead, what happens is as you move through the pages of the Bible, and especially as you turn to the New Testament, you find Rahab at the door. Rahab is at the front door of the New Testament. It's, it's beautiful. And I have to give credit that's a Brian Habig quote. Um, let me just give credit. Brian Habig's a pastor. I mentioned him last week, and uh, his sermons have been so influential regarding Joshua. That I'm going to stop listening to them. They're just you listen to them. I'm going to stop listening to them. I'll just preach Brian Habig sermons all all the time. But yeah, you turn to the New Testament, and there she is at the front door where God put her. Uh, you know, instead of being ashamed of her, God so changes her life that he weaves the story of King David and Jesus through her family line. That David is born of one of Rahab's descendants and that Jesus is born of one of Rahab's descendants. Clearly, God is not ashamed of her. She's a trophy of grace. And now we need to take a few lessons. Okay, a few lessons. What do we have to learn from, from a prostitute? What do we learn in the school of Rahab? I'm going to make these quick and direct, and, uh, and then we'll be done. I don't know all of you. 
And in some sense, I could say, I don't know any of you. Because all of us have things that we don't want anyone to know about. And if any of you think that you've done something so outrageously awful, or you're still doing something so outrageously awful, that you are far beyond God's saving, that there's no way that the God of the Bible could actually love and want you. Consider Rahab. Consider Rahab. She was a user. She was used. She committed adultery for a living. Abortions. Can't be a prostitute without having abortions. And God wanted her. He gave her new life as a gift because he loved her. If you're struggling to believe that real forgiveness and a new life is possible and the God of the Bible could possibly love you, consider Rahab. And I would also encourage you to talk to me or Callie or someone in this room that you know will listen. All right, let's talk about another group of people. If you are ever tempted to believe that you're better than Rahab or anyone else, I would encourage you to remember where you came from. Rahab shows up in Matthew 1, the the, the front door of the New Testament. She's also mentioned in two other places. Hebrews 11, which is the Faith Hall of Fame. Like, the big names are there, and she's there. And in James 2, is an example of good works. Faith and good works. But each time she's listed, she's listed as... Rahab the prostitute. In Hebrews 11, in other words, she is held up as an exemplar of faith. And she's still called Rahab the prostitute. You can almost imagine Rahab in heaven saying, like, how long do I have to get stuck with this job description? Like, what else do I have to do? And I don't think God's doing it to shame her. I think instead, we're, we're called to remember who she was and what she did because it's a fantastic demonstration of his grace. It's a trophy of his grace. And I don't think God wants you to forget who you are. If you're a Christian and you can say, yeah, I was a pornographer. I was, I was an addict. I was a, I was a intolerable, proud jerk. Well, just remember, you're not any better than Rahab the prostitute. And on your, on your bad days, maybe even on your good days, you're still those things. But God is being kind and giving you life. And it's when we remember that we too, whatever our issues are, are trophies of grace, that we begin to have the kind of humility that we need. I've told this story probably three times in ten years. Some of you have heard this. I have a pastor friend named Hal, and Hal's a pastor in the South. And uh, he was in his office one day when his janitor walked in. His janitor was probably like a 65-year-old ex-convict. Been in jail many times. Been out of jail many times. He was working at the church as a janitor. He walked into the office and said, Hal, I don't uh, don't think there's any hope for me. And Hal, he's a a good old boy from the South. Really sweet man. And he says, what you talking about? He's like, 
Hal, you know my story. You know what I've done. I, I just don't know if there's any way a guy could ever forgive me and love me. Hal's like five foot nothing, sort of roundish. Um, he's so great with people. And he, I can see him now. I got, he didn't tell me the story. I can see him sitting back in his chair and looking at him with his eyes crossed and saying, shoot, I'm worse than you. That's what he says. I'm worse than you. And this janitor, again, a former convict who's done all kinds of things, says, what, what do you mean you're worse than me? He says, well, we're going to have this conversation, and you're going to walk out and continue your business, and you're probably going to go to hell. And I'm going to forget we ever had this conversation. I'm worse than you. And, and the janitor thought about it and said, you're right, you are worse than me. And that was really important. That janitor actually realized in that moment, no, my, my pastor has a real problem with sin. He doesn't, and he's allowed me to see it. And if God can save that man, he can save me. And he became a Christian because some pastor had the wherewithal and the honesty to say, I'm worse than you. And if you're a Christian and, and you look down on people, uh, you need to come to this spot. You need to come to this place that you are saved only by grace, you're better than no one. And until you come to that, you really don't have anything to offer anyone. Lastly, when you understand these two things, his great grace can save anyone. And our great need, whoever we are, we, we need him. We can't save ourselves. And we remember where we come from. We have that. We have that humility. What that makes, friends, is a humble, welcoming community. The kind of place where someone like a pagan uh, prostitute from Jericho can come and join the family. Isn't it amazing to you that she did that? After the battle is over, Joshua walks her back and is like, Hey, this is Rahab. She's been a prostitute. She's one of us now. I don't know how that conversation happened, but something like that had to have happened. And she was brought in as a genuine part of the family. And until we are actually genuinely humble, because we know we need him and he's done great things for us, we will not be that kind of community. We expect that if people really knew what we were like, what we did, that they would reject us. And so all of us, to some extent, go about hiding. In our rooms, in our busyness, in our profiles. But when we understand that there's a God who saves us completely by grace, and that he wants to put us on display in the spotlight, not to shame us, but as trophies of his grace, of his great, forgiving, life-changing grace. And when we realize there's a God who saves and brings us in and makes us part of the family. Friends, we will, we will be different. It, we will be beautiful. We'll be the kind of welcoming community that can welcome in anyone. And people will want to come and, and ask, what, who, who is this God who gives life and forgiveness in a family? Let's pray together. Our good Father, we thank you for your kindness toward us in Jesus. And I pray that you would grant all of us 